This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Barry Carp, what a, uh, a great honour to get you on Chris Judd's Master of the Market. I've been pestering you for a while, but wrapped your, uh, wrapped your coming on. And uh, I thought maybe you could just start by giving us an outline of, of River Capital, and then we'll start to explore um, how you found yourself where you are today. Well, it's uh, a pleasure to be here, Chris, and, uh, and, and thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a long journey, 25 years this year, but, um, uh, but I was a corporate lawyer uh, you know, practising uh, uh, in Melbourne, then Chicago, and uh, um, I had uh, investment bankers calling me to, uh, uh, to set, yeah, ask for documentation at their holiday homes on the weekend while I was working all night, and I thought... Well, that's where I need to be. I need to be in the uh, in the investment banking. They're obviously uh, doing it uh, better than the lawyers. So, I came back to uh, Australia and uh, and worked uh, with Macquarie Bank. Uh, some terrific people, um, uh, including Shamara, who's now running the uh, the bank. But um, uh, Alistair Lucas, Simon McKeon, my current chairman, uh, Jim Craig. So, uh, in fact, we started on the same day at Macquarie. So. Uh, that was in their in their uh, Melbourne corporate advisory uh, business. It was in the mid '90s, and uh, uh, boy, it was a different uh, organisation to what it is today. Um, uh, I tell a, a story that I think I was offered shares. They weren't publicly traded at the time, but um, they were in a grey on a grey market at, at NTA of about a dollar fifty, and um, oh, yeah. uh, and I made uh, what is still probably my worst investment decision by saying no. I don't want to have all my eggs in the Macquarie basket. <laughs> <laughs> so I said no to these shares at a dollar fifty. Of course, they're one hundred and forty dollars today. So that would have been a um, a good start to my investment career. But I, I think, Chris, coming back to your question, it's about passion, and 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 life is about following your passion. And as much as much as I enjoyed working with some great people, um, uh, that wasn't my passion. And and for whatever reason, my uh, my DNA, my excitement was about business and how business worked and understanding revenue and profit and meeting people and talking to them about their business. And even to this day, I don't know where that came from. It perhaps it's it's you know grandparents or great grandparents, but something in my DNA um, excited me uh, about business. And so um, really at the age of um, uh, 29, 30, um, I made the judgment that that's where I wanted to spend my life. And and River Capital was born, um, you know, very creative start working in River Street, South Yarra. And, uh, and I thought, what am I going to call this? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, with the, uh, the support of, uh, of a handful of family and friends uh, in terms of very small investment, um, we got started. And, um, and it really did start with uh, meeting with companies. And uh, um, my focus at that time was very much small, mid-sized companies and, uh, uh, it was uh, it was a, a, an amazing uh, start to the journey going from Macquarie Bank and a big law firm mm-hmm. before that, you know, to sitting in an office on my own effectively um, and uh, and making this you know gigantic leap. 
but I look back on it now, you know, some 25 years, nearly 25 years later, um, and it's, uh, it, it really is a, a lesson on following your passion. So it's easy in hindsight to see the success of River Capital and, and for people to say, oh, it was always going to pan out like that. But when you're yeah. a 29 or 30-year-old, you would have had no idea how the, the future was going to pan out. What were some of the things you were feeling when you decided to make that leap? And, and what do you think it was that gave you the confidence to, to finally commit to, to leaving a, a much safer position at Macquarie? To starting up your own shop? It was safer, but I wasn't um, more comfortable in the safety, which is interesting. Um, and I think there is a, an element of, of uh, our human condition, which is sort of driving us to growth and, and driving us to, to perhaps, uh, uh, you know, do more and, and, and put ourselves out there and, and grow. And, and I think so, even though it was safe at, at um, uh, in the big law firm and at Macquarie Bank, I wasn't comfortable. So, um, and it wasn't until I started actually um, following my passion and actually, mm. you know, and it, it, it is trite to say it, but you do feel the comfort that comes with doing something that you enjoy doing. And, um, and I had, you know, incredible uncertainty, uh, but more, uh, there was an element of loneliness, as strange as it might be. You do get um, quite used to a big organisation and, um, you know, chatting to people regularly and, um, and, and just have, so I think almost the overriding um, feeling at that time was excitement, but there was a loneliness in that I was on my own and it, you know, it wasn't, um, uh, it, it wasn't a, an, an easy environment to start off with. And even I'm assuming that the capital you got given during those early years to invest, if you like most people, it was probably from people you knew pretty well, perhaps some, some family or even friends. Um, that's a tricky one, isn't it? That's a, a lot of added pressure. It's one thing to lose your own money. It's another thing to lose you know, family's money. How did you navigate those sort of emotions in the early days? It's still, you know, Chris, it's still the biggest um, challenge. So, um, and I don't think I've um, uh, I've gotten to the end of working out how to navigate that. So even today, um, you know, we've probably got seven or 800 um, uh, investors into our, into our main growth fund. And we've got a few other uh, funds that have emerged out of, uh, out of that uh, period. But nonetheless, in our main growth fund, um, if I don't know all the investors on a first name basis, it's pretty close. And, mm. and a very significant number of them are still family and friends. And so um, I still haven't worked out how to wear the, um, you know, the slings and arrows of, of average performance and, and um, a bad decision. And it's really public and it's really um, hard. So, you know, alongside people's health, managing their financial affairs and getting that right is uh, is right up there and and so you know it's a it's a great point because i don't know whether uh you want to be you know whether it i could have been or should be a, a different personality in a sense that doesn't dwell as much on on those things but it, you really do wear your heart on your sleeve when you've got uh, investors uh, that you're uh, close to. And it, it does make it harder, but I think it also uh, makes the uh, relationships and makes the business a much more personable uh, and, and much, uh, 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 yeah, more significant affair. So I wouldn't change it for the world, um, but, um, but it is uh, something that I'm still learning to, uh, you know, to navigate. I'd find it, 
I don't know if I paralyzing is the right word. I don't think my decision making would be as good if I was managing other people's money. But then I speak to some other investors and fund managers, and they say having other people's capital to allocate creates a discipline that they may not find if they didn't have it. Yeah. Where do you sit on that? Do you think your decisions are better for having that pressure, or do you find yourself taking perhaps less risk or, or less adventurous opportunities than you would if you didn't have um, that money behind you? Yeah, it's interesting because we just did a, a um, an exercise uh, just recently uh, of, uh, of testing our asset allocation over the last 10 years. And what I mean by asset allocation is because so much of our uh, investment fund is our own capital, say, uh, you know, probably 30 to 40% of the capital in our main growth fund is, is family um, and staff. Um, I think what uh, we've done as a result of that is we have tended to make asset allocation decisions in relation to cash. And so there have been times over that journey where we have held significant levels of cash um, because um, it has probably reflected the significant investment that we have in the fund as a family. Mm. Has that served us well? Interestingly, the, the back testing that we did, the answer is no. So the answer um, to your question is it probably hasn't served us well. Um, had we, our stock investment and our, our um, uh, you know, stock decisions have been terrific. Mm. Um, but the asset allocation in terms of the cash weighting along that journey actually hasn't served us. So you would expect us to have you know, more cash and, and lots, of, lots of cash when markets have, um, have run harder and, and um, um, and therefore liquidating and, and taking advantage of, of uh, you know, sort of building cash reserves there and similarly investing that cash when markets are sold off and taking advantage of the opportunity. But the reality and the human um, nature of those decisions has, has been different. And um, we've, uh, you know, we've probably detracted a little from performance because of the conservative nature of the asset allocation decisions that emerged from us having such a significant um, investment in the fund. So we've had to make sure that we bring an overlay, a portfolio discipline like the one you talked about with um, uh, institutional investors that actually says, okay, let's, um, let's make sure that we're not, um, uh, you know, we're not detracting from performance uh, by getting that asset allocation, by putting too much time into that asset allocation decision. And is there an ability for institutional investors, I speak, you know, some family office, say they like the funds they're in to be pretty close to fully invested because they want to decide what they have cash-wise, what they have invested, and if they give yep. money to a, a, a fund, that in their mind is, is capital that's allocated to the stock market. They've got their own cash holdings to allocate when... when prices drop, so to speak. Yep. Do you offer mandates for institutions where they can piggyback on the fund's decisions, but they're effectively fully invested? Yeah. So we've got, um, uh, you know, one large, uh, you know, sort of high net worth institution that has uh, uh, pursued that uh, uh, with us. Um, and uh, we've, uh, we've done that because we do think it brings a, a host of discipline to our investment processes in the main fund. And, and so uh, we do offer that, uh, that, that capability. But one of the things we have prided ourselves uh, for, for 25 years on is that we were all invested in the uh, one entity, the one legal mm -hmm. unit trust. And that still remains the case. 
outside of um, you know this uh, this one institutional uh, investor that does have a managed uh, account and is able to um, uh, make that asset that cash allocation decision. Every other uh, of those seven hundred investors are uh, with us with the family in the one unit trust, and so they have um, had the benefit of the uh, investment decisions that we've made in that fund. Um, and also, if you like, the detriment of that over allocation to cash at different times. But um, but on balance, it's been a uh, it's been a terrific um, um, journey uh, for all of our investors over that period of time. And uh, there is something powerful about saying, you know, we're all yeah. uh, in the one uh, investment vehicle together, and we all. Um, effectively get the, um, the you know the benefit and the, the the detriment of that and so we've been um, very uh, constant with that over the journey and speaking to people in the industry I was speaking to a CEO about you and uh, he was praising your attention to detail and he said you're a meticulous note taker and that even um, you know he would be, he would talk to you and, and you would bring up something from five years ago and, and say well no no that's not what you said you were going to do back then is that a a natural character trait that you've you've had or is it something that, that's been developed over your journey as an investor or is it a little bit of both yeah i'm really proud of the fact that we've got a number of investors uh many investors actually that have been ceos of companies that we have um, invested in and interacted with so you know one of the joys is that um, relationship that you uh, can build and uh, develop with um with ceos it's interesting I, I think the one of the key traits that you need in my view and i look for in in people that we work with is that curiosity and the humility um, and the curiosity, um, you know, I often say that in my view, every company is like reading a novel um, uh, and some are really interesting novels and some are really boring, but, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, to me and the guys in the team would say, you know, they've heard countless times me asking them, tell me the story. Cause I really do believe that every business has a story. It has a start, a middle and end and, and, and you really don't do justice to the meeting that you're having with the management of that business unless you understand the story um, because there's so much in the history that um, informs the present and the future. So I used to have a thing, and I still do actually, and I encourage our, our guys and, and girls on, on this, is that um, whenever I come out of a, a meeting, it's the first thing I do is to note down my instincts, my emotions. It's not a, um, this is not a transcript of the meeting and how many widgets were sold and what the cost of goods sold is and the profit. This is, boy, I'd like to be invested with him. What a great guy. What a journey. I, you know, I think he's amazing. Um, and this is a journey I want to be on. Just 10 minutes, I would sit in my car, literally outside um, the meeting as I'd come out, I'd sit in my car and before I'd drive anywhere, I'd scribble down that. And that was the genesis of the note taking. And um, it's so rewarding because not only, because it's so hard to capture the emotion and the instinctive feel, even three days later, because so much is going on in our lives, but five or 10 minutes after it's all there. And so when I would go back five years later for a meeting with that company, it's so powerful. I mean, I came, you know, I can see exactly how I felt and the notes that I took immediately after um, meeting with them. It doesn't always result in the best investment decisions, mm. but, um, uh, but it certainly helped.
And I guess it's something that the algos can't do, isn't it? You know, investors are always talking about edge, that that idea around, you know, feelings and nuance and, and you know, reading someone's body language when you're speaking to them. That, that's something that the algos, at least for the time being, can't do. They're getting better. They're, <laughs> they're, yeah. uh, they're getting better. I'm actually just uh, just reading um, uh, uh you know, just finishing the uh, the book on uh, another book on Amazon and um I tell you, as you're reading that, you you uh, you marvel at where the AI is going. Yeah. And I did, I do, for a moment, think um, all of us need to be incredibly aware um, of uh, you know how quickly that is catching up. But for the moment, you're right. I think the, I still think there's some real value, and I'm still uh, saying to the team all the time, there's real value in that um, uh, emotional response that you have because business is a lot about instinct and a lot about gut feel. And, and a lot about doing things, um, you know, on instinct. And if you get too bogged down in the financial model and trying to make the investment thesis work, I often say, you know, you've got to be excited about this. You mm. don't need to force yourself into investing in something. And so there's still a lot of emotion and instinct in that, I think. And so we, we talked about your character traits of meticulous note-taking, really organised, when you're looking to hire staff, do you want staff that have those same character traits so they fit into the company culture? Or are you looking for staff with different character traits so that they complement um, other areas of the business? How do you sort of tackle that from a culture perspective? Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a great way of putting it because do you just hire mini-me's or do, yeah. you, do you look for people that bring different skills and and there's certainly no point in 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 hiring mini me's as comforting as that might be um, because they do things the same way or they're willing to do things the same way no you've got to uh, bring people into the organization that fill the weaknesses that uh, that, that you've got and and um, I'm really proud actually as I look on our journey and I see you know guys that um, and girls that did their um, early years with River over that 25-year journey and now doing, um, you know, other things, you know, in their own businesses and creating their own organisations. I'm really proud of that start that um, uh, that we've given them. So there's an element of the DNA uh, that we have that I think is very important for our our, our people to, to have, and that's the curiosity, that's the um, uh, the humility, it's the note-taking, it's, it's, it's um, doing those things. Um, but there's lots of stuff that you want people to bring of their own personalities um, beyond that. And, um, um, you know, we've got, um, we've got deep thinkers, we've got, um, uh, we've got instinctive thinkers, um, uh, we've got um, uh, uh, curious and, and humble uh, people, but we've also got, uh, you know, confident and, um, um, and, and assured people. So, um, definitely don't want um, mini me's, and I think there is a journey to be had in this or in funds management, like in any business, um, in in leadership, and um, and it's something that um, uh, that I'm definitely still working on, and and is you know there's no um, there's no easy code that um, that that helps you um, you know working with people and bringing those um, people up to, um, you know, to, to their potential. It's, um, uh, it's one of the great challenges. And also, I guess, when at your stage, you're now running, you've got two different jobs in a way. You're an investor yeah. and then you're managing a team and, and developing staff underneath you. 
how do you sort of view those or, or split those two roles and, and which one do you see as, as, as keeping more of your focus in your day-to-day today? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I, when people would ask me what I do or how I would define myself on a business card, it really is an analyst. You know, for the first, mm. you know, 10 or 15 years, that's really what you're doing. And, and um, you know, you'd be well aware. I mean, the time that you spend actually, you know, just making assessments and analysing businesses, that's, that's at its core. But then all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, the human condition being what it is, you want to grow, you want to do more things and you bring people in and there is something nice about you know, developing uh, people in a team. And um, and I think fund managers perhaps make some of the worst business leaders um, in that sense because typically the best fund managers uh, are guys and girls that are really very happy in their own company, just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not being too perturbed about the uh, the noise and, the, uh, and, and everything else that's going on, but just focused on their own thing. Well, to be a leader of a business, you really need to be comfortable uh, dealing with your people and and um, and engaging on on a, on a regular basis and providing feedback and all of that. You can't just sit in the office with the door closed and, mm. and do your analysis and talk to companies. So, I found that the biggest challenge um, in my wife Susie, who's very involved in the uh, the business, uh, has been a a really good uh, you know balance there in uh, in helping on some of those. Um, uh, softer skills in helping on the people skills in helping to grow the business. Uh, so she might not necessarily be involved uh, on the, you know, do we buy this or do we sell that? Uh, but making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with the right people and and bringing the right culture and um, uh, and all of those things, she's been instrumental in that. So it's, it's not a skill that is, I don't think is natural for uh, most fund managers and they do end up having to hire uh, you see a lot of guys hiring a CEO uh, oh. or a COO or whatever uh, to deal with the people issues. Mm. Um, uh, we've, I've just surrounded myself with, with really good people, including Susie, um, you know, to help uh, really get some balance to the staff and, and, and to provide a, a pathway um, and a journey that's exciting for your team because um, uh, that's ultimately what we all want to go to, you know, to go to work and, and have that passion and be challenged day to day. And so you mentioned the, the idea of understanding the story of a, of a company, but maybe just digging a little bit deeper into your investment process. So I've been to your office before and we've had a, a chat and I've seen there's just whiteboards everywhere, enormous whiteboards and, and a lot of re- relative comparisons of companies yeah. in the, the same sector. Do you start with different sectors that you like and then seek out the, the best value companies in that sector or maybe talk us through your, your investment framework from, from start to finish. Yeah, we do. We do start with, um, with, with sectors that we like because I'm attracted to simplicity. I'm attracted to, um, you know, to, um, uh, to past patterns and behaviours. And so um, whilst we all want to grow and, and learn new things, there is an attraction to businesses in our case it might be um, it might be quick service restaurant businesses and think of you know Domino's and KFC. Why? Because average weekly sales um, margins are predictable. Um, I, I can map out patterns over a long period of time, and you can see where those patterns are out of whack. Um, you know, uh, d- developed software businesses, uh, data centers. You know, we started investing in. 
uh, in, in international data centres actually originally and, and um, uh, in fact, you know, before Next DC was even a, um, uh, a, a listed company here in Australia. But, but so uh, retail, branded wholesale, um, why? Because many of our investors had retail backgrounds and, uh, and, and branded wholesale business backgrounds and we could therefore leverage off their skills. I could take an investor to a meeting with a company nothing more powerful than going along to a meeting with a company with someone in the industry that actually um, knows the questions to ask. So our investment process was very much um, uh, based around that first meeting with a company in a sector that we had developed a little bit of expertise or, or, or knowledge about and making sure that we asked the right questions, had the right people in the room to ask the right questions, don't waste people's time. Uh, don't waste management's time. And then come back and start to map it out on a whiteboard. Start to think about, uh, you know, the different business choices you have in that, in that sector. Um, start to compare and contrast. But ultimately, uh, when we boil it all down, we're looking for 22. I always talk about a football team in terms of the first 22. Um, you know, do we have... 22, what are our 22 best ideas and why? And that'll form the basis of our team. There might be 23 or 24, there shouldn't be 30. 22, there'll be lots of reserves looking for a spot in the team. Um, and then you say, okay, what will the 22 look like? Well, they'll have, in our case, they'll probably have four different styles of business. They'll have our, what we call our infrastructure style business, predictable cash flows, think, um, uh, think Sydney airports, think Auckland, uh, think those sorts of businesses. Then you'll have your, 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 um, your, your platform cash cows, your stars. They're the leaders in their fields. Mm. That's the realestate.coms, the Seeks, the, um, the Fisher and Parkle healthcare. They're the dominant players. They're your best players in the team. They're also the most expensive. Um, and so you can start to formulate it. We've got a third category, which are our, um, our land grab businesses. Think of business like Afterpay. Um, you know, that is your, uh, that's your recruit that could be anything. Yeah. Um, and, and finally, you've got, in our case, what we call our cyclical businesses. Um, and they're capable of being great, but they can really disappoint as well. Um, and so they're your erratic um, uh, performer. So even in our 22 we're looking at it like a, uh, you know, in a sense, like a, a starting football team. And you'll have a mix in those four categories of performers and what you're expecting from them. Bring it all back to an investment thesis. Bring it all back to a financial model of what you expect over the next five years and make sure you're monitoring their performance religiously against that investment thesis. And that's what we try to do um, with our with our football team, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and you've got a uh, you've got a really heavy focus on return on invested capital. Uh, people love putting investors in a, a box, and yeah. probably full stop, don't they? It's not just investors; they they love yeah. it if you can neatly fit people in a box. So perhaps we could put you in a value at a reasonable price box, um, preferring not to have to do that. But but. Yeah. Put that aside, is there a room for an investor to change their style depending on what the market opportunities are giving them? Or do you think if your strength is analyse and investing in companies that have high returns on invested capital and that's where your skill set lies, you should stick to your knitting? 
I think it comes back to um, what you're passionate about and what you're really excited about. I, I don't think you certainly can't flip flop um, across strategies. You can't, um, uh, in my view, and, and perhaps there are examples of some that have, but in our organization, I think you have to anchor to something as an organization, whether it's a label, whether it's a DNA whether it's a way of going about it. I don't think for us it's a label. Um, I think it's more a DNA and a way of going about things. So that means that you might have in the one portfolio, um, you know, after pay and, uh, and you might have Sydney Airport. I mean, two more different businesses you couldn't find. So I think from our perspective, I, I would like to think that we're very true uh, to, our, uh, to our DNA, to the sort of process that I outlined, to, uh, to formulating a team of, of, of businesses that have different qualities and different characteristics deliberately because you wouldn't want a team of afterpays because, mm. you know, that, that could end uh, badly, nor would you want a team of Sydney airports. Mm. So I think there is scope for, for mixing and matching in the same way in an AFL team, you've got a very you know, clear mix of, of qualities of, uh, of players. Um, I don't think that um, though you can actually, um, you know, flip-flop according to what the market's doing. It's very hard. We were talking about it earlier. It's very hard not to get drawn to the green or to the red. And mm. um, and momentum can be such a, um, a dangerous thing in terms of investing, getting carried away with the momentum. And one of the things that we're always trying to be true to is that, you know, you have to sell a business when there are lots of buyers and you have to buy a business when there are lots of sellers. And that is almost the hardest thing to do mm. because to sell a business when there are lots of buyers means you're selling it when there's all that green. Mm. Um, and similarly, to buy a business when there are a lot of sellers, you've got to buy it when there's all that red. Um, and if you don't follow that, then, and we've seen it, we've been guilty of it so many times that if you're trying to sell a business when everyone else is trying to sell it, well, we know how that ends. Mm. And similarly, if you're trying to buy a business when everyone else is buying it, you're paying a big price for it. So, it's um, uh, you, you do need to, um, to 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 find an anchor in the way you do things. One of the challenges when you're buying, when a lot of people are, are wanting to sell, is you're potentially early, and you can have a cost in your monthly performance or your three monthly performance, even though the longer term outcome may be exactly how you want. How do you manage that as a fund manager, where you've got potential redemptions from monthly? performance yeah. or quarterly performance how do you manage the need to keep monthly performance where it needs to be versus longer term objectives i think you have to align your business with your investors yeah. i think if i think it does come back to that and we've grappled with this along the way as many do particularly if you're running an open ended fund providing liquidity uh, as we do um, that you need to make sure that you are working with um, investors that are aligned to your way of thinking um, and can absorb the, you know, the shocks of, of, of sort of monthly volatility, but you still clearly need to demonstrate that you can generate um, you know, decent long-term performance. And, um, and, and so I think it does come back to that alignment of, of investors because, you know, you could, whilst all of our investors will say they're, uh, their long-term focus, and I believe that. Um, there are many that uh, take comfort in the monthly liquidity um, that, the, that the fund offers and the ability to come in and out. So, uh, so just to close the fund and turn it into, if you like, a private equity-style fund, 
um, would, would, I think, make many investors, notwithstanding their long-term investment horizons, uncomfortable. So we do strike a balance between providing liquidity but ensuring that our investors are a long-term focus. And the way we do that, um, to give you an example, is uh, I had an investor call me the other day or a potential investor call me the other day to say that they had just sold their house they weren't going to be um, in the market for a year or two. They were just going to, uh, you know, sit on some uh, uh, on that cash for a year or two. But could they put the money into the growth fund for a year or two with a view to buying the house? And I said, absolutely not. That makes no sense um, because you're taking a, 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 a punt on where the market's going to be in a year or two. Um, you know, notwithstanding my views on buying and selling property in different markets and all of that, mm. I, you know, I wasn't going to get into that. But just understanding that for that investor, they really were looking to have that cash to buy a property in, in a year or two. It's not appropriate to put them into a, um, a an equity fund where that volatility of capital pricing is so prevalent. So um, so you do, you do have to align your investors um, to what you're providing. And that means that for, for, for some people, you're, um, you're not right. Your, your mandate is, is not appropriate. That's fine. There are there are so many different mandates out there and so many different um, you know, op- investment opportunities. You've just got to match, um, match them with your investors' um, uh, you know, mandate. And speaking to someone else who's, who's worked with you, they mentioned one of the things they admire about you is that we, when you do make a mistake, the ability to just do the work, acknowledge it's a mistake, cut it and move on versus if, I think it's, it's more a trap that retail investors get into where they end up doubling down and, and looking for confirmation bias to prove that it's not a mistake. Um, do you agree that that's something you've, you've developed and, and is that a natural skill or, or a learned one? I think it's actually, I find it um, easier, uh, almost perversely, I find it easier to, to cut those bad decisions um, than to hold on to them because yeah. it, it, it becomes, and I know what you mean, there's always the temptation to put something in the bottom drawer in inverted commas and it'll come back, not worry about it. But, uh, but that capital um, is, is available to you and to your investors to invest in something that you're genuinely excited about mm. and that you've gotten right. And, um, and so um, having that investment thesis, you know, and it doesn't need to be a, a you know, a complicated document. I mean, I often uh, would say to, to our guys, I want to be able to explain at the time to my nine-year-old son, who's now 18, but I want to explain to my nine-year-old son why we're investing in this. Can you explain it in, in those sort of terms? Because if you can't, um, then perhaps you don't understand it. I've always been a believer that you mm. need to be able to explain something so that a nine-year-old can understand it. That demonstrates that you can understand it, and and so our investment theses aren't aren't you know long and and um, and complicated. But why do you own it? What are you what are you expecting? What profit growth are you factoring in? Um, and then put that into. It doesn't have to be a sophisticated financial model, but put that into a model. Now, if after six months you see the company um, report and they present their accounts and you're looking at it and it bears no relation to what your investment thesis was, then the best thing to do is move on and say, you know, I didn't understand this. This is totally different to what I anticipated or we just got it wrong, whatever the reason, but move on and, and find something that, you're, um, um, that you've got a better understanding of and that you're mo- more closely aligned to. Now, that's different, of course, to actually, you know, a company missing your forecast by... Um, 
five percent or ten percent yeah. or whatever the number is, but the long term expectations being very much um, consistent with your thesis. So you know the cutting it straight away is where you look at the at the result and you go, wow, this is this is so different to what we'd anticipated that we just got it wrong. Let's move on. And and I um, there's there's almost a little bit of a liberation yeah. in, in feeling um, you know because you really you want there to be competition for spots in your best team, and when you're constructing a portfolio. Um, it is a blend. You'll get some wrong. Um, you need to get more right than clearly than you get wrong, but it is a blend and you need to make sure that you have stocks pushing for positions in your uh, best team. Um, and, uh, and therefore, there'll always be stocks and sometimes they're not even the worst performing. Um, you just don't necessarily have the aspirations for that business over the medium term or they come out. And that can be even harder than, than selling a position you've got wrong is selling a position that's actually, it's okay, but it's just not going to deliver you the performance that, um, that your best team needs to deliver you. That's brilliant. Well, I, I could cheer you off all day, but I thought we'd finish with, uh, with three questions, if you don't mind. <laughs> so what was your first ever investment? Oh, the, uh, uh, I've got to tell you, Chris, we used to sit around in the Monash University Law Library underneath there uh, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and uh, and punting penny dreadful stocks in the 1980s <laughs> and what a brilliant lesson for a young um, investor because in those days there was no t plus two it was t plus about 27 yeah that's right uh, i heard that so so we would buy a stock and we would sell it and we'd be done before we even had to think about settling it and we, going into the 1987 crash, um, uh, friends and I, we had a portfolio of penny dreadfuls. Um, they all went, um, uh, and what a great lesson, they all went under. Uh, in fact, you know, sadly, I had friends even at 19, 20, 21 that were going through uh, bankruptcy proceedings. In, uh, oh, yeah. in, and, but what a, what a great lesson uh, about what can happen. So I can't tell you the exact name of that penny dreadful, but there was a thematic that's perhaps maybe much more conservative um, uh, going forward. Sounds a lot like my life now, just without the cigarettes and university, to be honest. What well, there a, you go. What, about, what advice would you have to your 18-year-old self? Uh, that's a great question. What investment, advice? investment advice, preferably. It can be life advice if you'd prefer. Yeah, no, no, I think, uh, I think investment advice for me is um, I still think um, making things more simple um, less complex, um, being curious and humble. So um, I've said those words a few times, but it, it's amazing how much the relationship with a CEO is improved by recognising at the outset of that meeting that you don't know anything about their business mm -hmm. and they know a lot more than you. And it's amazing how many 18, 19, 21-year-olds will go into a meeting first and foremost, and we've all been guilty of it at that age, being full of hubris and confidence because that's where we are in life and not recognising the expertise of the person on the other side of the table. So listening, ask questions, is never a silly question. I wish I had have told myself that at 18. There's don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a silly question. Um, and in fact, most of the silly questions that you hear asked are the ones that you wanted to ask but didn't have the courage to. Um, so I'd, that's, I'd certainly be telling myself that at 18, 19, 20. And what are the most common mistakes you see retail investors make versus professional investors? 
I think it's that buy high, sell low that we we, we talked about earlier. I think it's that um, uh, that momentum um, uh, you know driven strategy. But but I also I've got to say I also know many retail investors, many smaller investors. Um, who are um, you know as as good at this as people that we would describe as sophisticated investors? So, yeah. I often um, you know I know a lot of people go to that tag of um, you know go with a fund manager, go with an institutional investor, or, or a, a sophisticated investor over a, over a retail one. But but in our investor base, gee, we've got some smart retail investors, um, and um, I, there's uh, there's so much that I learn. Uh, from our own investor base, and and um, uh, so I think sometimes we're probably a little too quick as professionals to um, um, you know to characterise retail investors as as buy high, sell low, which is which is a popular way of describing it. But gee, we've got a lot in our investor base that could um, and do show us a thing or two at times. Barry, it's been brilliant, mate. Like I said, I really appreciate you coming on. I've loved the chat. I've learned a lot. And uh, thanks very much for, for giving me your time. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, mate. For more info on today's partner, AIA Health Insurance, visit aiahealth.com.au or call 133 AIA today. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.